Hello and welcome to Series 3 of the Future of Internal Communication podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication. This podcast explores the evolving role of internal communication in the future of work. I'm Jen Sproul, Chief Exec of the IOYC, and I've teamed up with Kat Barnard, who's a partner at Working the Future, and we're joined by Don Walters, our leadership comms expert. And together we host a conversation about the changing nature of internal communication. Each episode, we're joined by a special guest and with so much change in the world of work. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. Um, and, and for this podcast, we're going to take a break from normal proceedings. And, and actually, we're just going to chat amongst myself and my all-time favourite co-hosts, Dominic Walters and Catherine Barnard, because we want to talk about this very pertinent issue that's going on about the great resignation and therefore what is the role of internal communication in recruitment and retention and actually we're going to make Kat as a bit of a focus on guest um, on this episode because Kat has spent more than 20 years uh, working in the field of workforce planning she's worked to recruit and support engineering teams across Europe and has always attributed her success in this area to interpersonal and relationship building skills So, as the great resignation continues to bite, organisations of all sizes are struggling to recruit and retain staff. So, the three of us are going to explore the role of internal communication in recruitment and retention and examine what is this opportunity for us as a profession as organisations become more reliant on what we like to call the alternative workforce, a term that was actually coined by Deloitte uh, to deliver their business results. So you've got the three of us for this episode and we are really excited to delve into what is a very topical issue at the moment. So Kat, as our resident future of work expert and, and those with uh, that 20 year uh, history in uh, workforce planning, what is, let's start with, what is the alternative workforce? What, what is the definition that we're talking about here? Cool. Uh, well, I, so I was, I'm laughing because I, I, I know that we talked about 20 years. Actually, it's possibly close to 30 years, but I don't like to focus in on my age too much. I thought, you know, perhaps I would just try and condense that. But the alternative workforce um, is a is it a, a term that's de- um, Deloitte came up with in some of its research and, and essentially it just means anybody who is not on the permanent payroll of a company so you could be talking about temps, contractors, freelancers um, when we look at the future of work at Working the Future we, we talk about people within the supplier ecosystem who you might have a dependency on to get work done um, so anybody that is not part of your very core permanent payrolled team um, who you have a dependency on to deliver any kind of organisational results, that's what we would define as the as the alternative workforce. And as you'd imagine, that's pretty vast in the 2020s. You know, I think I've gone from seeing what was 25, 30 years ago a pretty distinct markation between permanent and non-permanent to a fragmentation of the the non-permanent workforce. So, you know, we have people on zero-hours contracts. We have, as I say, sort of freelancers. We've got the rise of portfolio careers. 
self-employment. I think the World, the World Economic Forum has put some data out suggesting that by 2030, as many of us, as 50% as of us could be working on a self-employed basis. So it's a, it's a growing and significant part of the working population that that is necessary to de deliver business results and yet included in the same Deloitte research there's an acknowledgement that there's not enough being done to engage that segment of the workforce. I, I, and I guess I, just as you talk about that and just reflecting on that you know, is this is this also the gig economy is that what we're defining defining as the, the alternative so it's all yeah. let's get that really clear we talk about the gig economy the alternative workforce we're all talking from the same place and I know we're going to pick up a little bit on some other questions, but one of the things that just strikes me, and perhaps we'll pick up on this later, and I hear this from, from many internal communicators that, that I chat to and work with, is as we move towards this more alternative gig economy-based workforce, what we're also having the challenge of is actually understanding how do we reach them? Because actually sometimes when you're thinking about, well, they're not on my database, they're not in the HR system, they're not classed as this, so they, they miss out on obvious communications before we even get to the issues of, of great resignation and why people are moving towards it. And then if we think about our purpose, which is to engage employees with vision, values, and strategy. Should they care? Why is it their strategy? You know, what what does that mean? Do they, if they sit outside of the employee database or the employee definition, and I know that's not necessarily we're going to talk about the great resignation as, as a focus, but it's something that I'm conscious of as we talk about it and this growing thing that actually it's a real technical block yes. and let alone emotional block for internal communicators to connect with the alternative gig workforce that makes up that population yeah. yeah i mean that's a massive 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 issue that you've highlighted right there if you're if you're organizationally if you are going to the trouble and expense of sourcing and paying for ad hoc expertise and you're not including them in dialogue about the organizational strategic goals, objectives, etc. Why should anybody care about their output? You know, it automatically reduces the equation to kind of a binary, I'll get paid, do my time, move on. But all you'll ever get in that dynamic is a minimum viable contribution and actually it's it strikes me as completely bonkers that in the digital age where we have tools coming out of our ears to measure pretty much anything and everything that there would still be such a, a, a disconnect between permanent and non-permanent expertise like if you can if you can have your permanent headcount on some kind of database where you can basically analyze the hell out of them, which is what's going on in the 2020s. Why would you not have that for the non-permanent segment of your workforce? And why would you not be aligning? I know we've talked a lot in, you know, in the last couple of years within our sort of internal conversations about the, 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 the need for alignment, but why would you not be aligning 
all of those additional participant members of your team in a conversation so that everybody clearly understands what the the goals and objectives are and the values and the vision you know um that's just nuts why is it not happening i don't know why it's not happening i hasten to add maybe a, a technical detail with um which is probably what what what's driving some of those issues i mean but obviously that's where people are going to and they're looking at this as a, as a new future i know dom you want to pick up on actually this this bigger bigger theme that we're dealing with yeah I, I, number of times now in, in this broad uh, podcast and in previous ones, we've, we've spoken about the Great Resignation. Um, so I, I thought actually it'd be useful just to define what we mean by it, first of all, and then look at some of the things driving it. Because I read about the Great Resignation. It's being driven from the US and, and in Europe particularly. Um, it makes think, where are these people going? They can't all suddenly have inherited money or become financially independent. So where are they going? And then what are they looking for and what's what's making them move? So, sorry, let me break that down to some questions, Kat. First of yeah. all, it'd be great to get your take on what this great resignation is and how we know it's different or if it's different from what we've seen in, in previous years. And, and then secondly, your take on some of the factors that, that are driving it. Wow. Okay. So um, you're absolutely right. It was a term that was coined, uh, I think, sort of springtime of 2021 by an American business uh, professor, and it was used to describe the basically what seemed to be a post-lockdown reaction to work and great swathes of people resigning from their positions, um, creating both in the United States and, and here in the UK. I think to a lesser extent in Europe, because we've still got in Europe, far more um, unionisation and far more um, structured labour markets. We kind of sit halfway house, don't we, between Europe and the United States, which has got very few labour protections. But um, we're seeing, you know, great swathes of, of, of uh, people moving around the labour market. And I think the REC, the Recruitment and Employment Confederation, has been tracking labour market data over the last two years, we're seeing the highest number of live vacancies advertised on job boards at the moment and and skill shortages, basically, which we knew we were going to get in the aftermath of, of, of Brexit. But, but there's been absolutely a kind of almost an accelerant poured onto the labour market, which has just caused so much fluctuation. And I've spoken to business leaders who've tried to attribute this purely to wage inflation which i just think is really really short-sighted actually because there's several things in play first and foremost i think we can probably all agree that how work was getting done even before the pandemic was very lackluster we've seen very um inadequate engagement levels for as long as it's been getting tracked by gallup um we know uh, that people have intrinsic motivators for how they work, which oftentimes, most of the time, are not even acknowledged in conversations around employment. Um, we know, because Jen, that's kind of where you and I met, you know, the good, um, the, the, the whole, the RSA had been pioneering this good work charter trying to um, present ideas around what constitutes good work and, and how work could be so much better 
than it is today. And, you know, if I was to call it, I would say there's several things going on. One is the pandemic is quite literally a life-threatening health crisis. And it has caused all of us, bar a scant few, I'd imagine, to really question kind of the meaning of life and what constitutes a good life. And if your days are numbered, how do you choose to spend them? And I'm guessing that mediocre work is not up there on the top, you know, the top three of how do I choose to spend my days. Um, I think we're starting to get anecdotal evidence or data stories around why why people are leaving and largely it would be in response to how they felt their employer dealt with the pandemic and lockdowns and and you know obviously we fell off a cliff economically at the start of 2020 and there were employers that literally just in in grand form made people redundant and then you know x months later needed to rehire and that's all really inelegant isn't it it's really um inhumane if you think about it so i think there's been a big awakening amongst people as to how they want to spend their days and who they want to work for um I think you, you, you asked another question about, you know, where are all these people going? I think mm. there's a really interesting stuff here because there was an article and I can't remember whether it was in the Financial Times or the Times, which one of the broadsheets it was, but literally in the last week talking about, you know, the government has made uh, a big announcement about how it's going to cut universal credit down to four weeks because people have to prove that they're proactively looking for work but it doesn't account for the fact that there's over half a million people who've literally left the labour market without claiming any benefits and nobody at this point knows where they've gone to. So on the one hand, at one end of the labour market, that could be people who've just decided, you know what, I only had another couple of um, years left on the clock. I'm just going to go and, and, and part retire, retire, you know, pursue other interests and what have you. At the starting point of careers, there's reason to believe that people are staying in education. So people are prolonging their um, academic journeys, taking years out, which obviously then kind of stockpiles the um, entrance into the labour market. And then people are, are choosing to do masters and PhDs um, rather than enter a labour market that is completely unstable and so on. But what strikes me in all of this that is, is you know, probably the most poignant bit, and I'm really minded of, of um, you know, a conversation that we had with Colin Archer in our last episode, and he was talking about the role of internal communication and how internal communication has this extraordinary ability to enter any department with no agenda and, and ask questions that nobody else dares ask. And I think the misnomer about the great resignation at the moment is who's asking the questions who's actually digging into the detail to find the evidence of why people are moving mm -hmm. and why they're opting to leave for however long and, and, and what does that forever long look like anyway we're not 
you know, we, we're really good in 2022, aren't we, at looking at dashboard data, quantitative data that gives us these tiny little sound bites and snippets, but we're crap at asking the questions that give us the rich insight. Especially as listening to what you're saying there, Kat, the people who are going broadly, I know you can't generalise, but broadly as a guide, tend to be have high, high self-efficacy. So they must have a certain degree of self-confidence in order to make the leap. Um, so therefore, they're going to be even harder to engage because they've got higher standards um, and they're prepared to move if they don't feel those standards are being met. So it's almost as if we've got to even step up our mark, even, sorry, step up our game even more as communicators to reach out externally uh, to people who are going to be harder to reach, much more cynical and much harder to convince. Yeah, absolutely. And to tell the truth, Dom, in all my years, of recruiting, workforce planning, headhunting, etc. There was absolutely no joined up thinking at the um, organisational end. Internal comms wasn't even involved in the dialogue. Mm. To, to be fair, if I was going to be completely brutal, I would say one of the biggest challenges and one of the biggest reasons for the great resignation right now is because HR has become so transactionalised and so reductionist in its approach but oftentimes, recruitment teams and HR teams aren't even talking the same language. And then, if you think about the idea that, that what the internet did was it created access to far, far greater swathes of potential job applicants, recruitment just became a massive numbers game. So if you're, you know... It, not very long ago you could advertise a vacancy and you could you could specify you know it's based in London and we're looking for somebody with x y and z skills but you'd still receive applications from people who hadn't read that and you'd be looking at you know application numbers in the hundreds and rather than communicate with those applicants no because no because no because this phenomenon just evolved of, well, we're just going to ignore the people we're not interested in. And if you do that enough, the entire industry, the entire labour market gets transactionalised to a point where candidates don't actually expect a response and will thank you when they do get one. But also they'll throw their CVs around if they're actively job seeking and and rather than look for an accurate fit, they'll just scattergun approach. So it just creates noise and mess. And actually, you know, if you reverse engineered that and you started from the premise of, I know I'm going to receive a lot of CVs, but actually to, to rehumanize the approach, everybody deserves some form of communication. Straight off the bat, you're building a relationship and you're enhancing your employer brand and you're providing an experience regardless of whether or not that candidate goes through the application and interview process you are providing an experience because you're providing a touch point and I think what's interesting now is that that behavior has been going on for pretty much the last decade and now employers are bluntly crying into their milk that they can't access the skills they need 
to grow their business. And it's like, well, if you, you transactionalize that process, you started that, there's good data to show that after the financial crash of 2007, 2008, the labor market massively changed. Nobody had heard of zero hours contracts prior to that market crash. And if you think about how demeaning and dehumanizing those zero hours contracts can be for people who need to put food on the table for their families, yet they cannot rely securely on a wage packet from one week to the next. I'm not surprised that we're in the situation we're in now. And just a part of the agenda second, just to pick up on that as well, because um, I, I guess if you look at the people who are leaving, you do need to be in a certain position to leave. I mean, forever, however uncomfortable you are, you have to be in a position, going back to your point about putting food on the table. So there must be in every organisation people who have moved closer to the door but haven't quite gone because they can't physically afford to, perhaps, or there are other constraints around them, but whose engagement is, is getting worn down. And I guess that's something which we, we as communicators need to highlight to senior people and emphasise that we have to make harder, harder efforts to engage with people and find out why they're in that position. Jen, yeah, no, I was just going to, sorry, I was just going to, uh, because I agree absolutely with Dom and, and all the things that have been said. And, you know, for me, that just summarizing some of what you're saying, Kat, as well, it's about the basics, the basics of relationship that start from the outset. Employment doesn't begin when you walk in the door. It begins bef way before that. Um, but also, I think that we're in this stage as well where, dare I use a terrible terminology, where there's a bit of herd mentality. We've created herd mentality with the ability to leave. I see one go, I see the next go, I see the new opportunities. And we're actually feeling like people are standing up for each other now. I'm going to stand up for that. My friends are working for it, as well as the appearance of the alternative workforce, um, which I can buy into potentially if my skills fit for that. Um, so I think that there's, there is this sense of we've got to be watching where are those Pick up what you're saying, Dom. Where are those people in those functions or sitting by the door that are seeing that happen that then replicates and ripples that behavior through and actually and how we fight back from it? But I also think I want to pick on up on this thing you're talking about. We can talk about recruitment, but let's talk about retention, the role of internal communication in retaining people. How can we become part of the solution? We are not the complete solution. It has to be a joined up approach. But what more can we do? And one of the things that strikes me, and I want to perhaps throw this one back to you, Dom, as well, is as people leaving, yes, we know it's about values and ethics and things they don't stand for, or there's a brighter future. Or actually, this doesn't feel like good work for me because my perception of things has changed. But I also think that what's happening now is you've got a lot of uh, relationship issues in organisations, poor line management. You know, we've talked a lot about leadership communication. And actually, perhaps one of the reasons why we're leaving is that we're not seeing leaders that we want to work for values that we want to work for but actually let's break it down to the day-to-day -day. actually what really makes you can kind of sometimes maybe bypass that but if your line manager treats you poorly communicates with you poorly and then you don't have a community of colleagues around you physically every day to help understand that placate that banter about it we all bantered about a line manager every now and again 
that to me feels like a real issue of retention is line management communication skill. And I know, Don, we're trying to do more work on that, but we, and we've talked about it for years as a profession, but isn't this issue now the opportunity to invest in that? Yeah, you just struck a chord with me so you know, prolifically. Listen, my if you were to choose between sentence A, you know, statement A and statement B, do people work for organisations or do they work with people? I would say they work with people. And your point about dis, high, you know, the disengaged remainers, let's say, that is absolutely true. And I did read some data. I need to dig it out and not right now. But there is data around the cost of disengagement. You know, it has been quantified. But actually, you know, when I we did some research last year and I, I remember speaking to a number of my kind of recruitment, uh, you know, colleagues who are still in the game and asked, what are people saying? What's their reason for leaving? And obviously, yes, salary featured. But you know what the single most poignant reason was? It's not the same company that I joined my colleagues have left. So you're absolutely right that if there isn't a thread to bind you anymore, then the chances are you're going to leave. And if I think, I mean, I haven't spent a massive amount of my career in permanent employment, as you know, but if I think about the jobs that I did leave, I reckon my heart had gone out of the psychological contract probably six to nine months before I left and I stayed because I enjoyed working with colleagues so if you're not enjoying working with colleagues and you're not enjoying the relationship that you've got with your line manager and I'm going to make a massive assumption because your line manager is focused on hard quantifiable metrics and not on the human dynamics that go to make up a team, then there's a massive problem there that your internal communication professional is superbly positioned to help resolve, I'd say. I don't know, Don, what do you think? No, I think you're right. I think um, uh, going back to what you're talking about, the line manager, then they, they've been put under under a big test, probably unlike a t any test they've had in the last 10, 15 years, when... Uh, we all started working from home, or many people started working from home, and they had to manage those teams. And I think they, be leaders as we know, became, or line managers actually, became the face of an organisation. And many were left wanting, I think, because they weren't able to provide the support or didn't know the, what, what support they should give to people. And the chickens from that are coming home to roost now. And it's interesting, if you look back over the last, uh, well, since Christmas, we're now in February, so in, in Christmas, since Christmas, organisations, particularly the civil service, are saying, come back to the office. And they're not getting the response they expected. And I think for many organisations, that's quite surprising because they're used to giving an instruction, having it obeyed. And people, for whatever reason, are not following it in the same way. I think that's broken, if it was ever there, but it's broken that sort of, we'll do what, what line managers think, uh, tell us to do. And I think that's suggesting even more that managers have to become much better at conversation, much better at understanding, much better at framing discussions and, and arguments so they fit the needs of the individuals they're speaking with, uh, and much more prepared to listen and ask questions. Things I know we've been talking about for years, but I think going back to your point, Kat, the, t the time now is better than it's ever been to, for people to do that. 
And I think as well, because I'm just thinking about something else that you'd said, you'd picked up on, and I think it's fair to, to comment on this as well. Um, you know, I always think of the labour market as being kind of a, a, a U-shape, really, where you've got um, kind of, I guess, what, what, how would we define them in this day and age? Like low-skilled, perhaps old-school, blue-collar workers then we've got this kind of mass middle and then we've got at, at the other end of that u-shape highly skilled highly sought after workers and what we're noticing is that the movement within the labor market is cutting across all of those areas and i think you know if you think about the the lockdown the first lockdown you know it hit worst those people who were probably in the most precarious type of of con employment contract so people that were working in retail and hospitality couldn't couldn't work because there was nothing open um i mean the care homes my goodness i don't i don't know i mean that was just horrific wasn't it when you think about the amount of life loss both with residents and with um staff members um and you think about things like the the last mile delivery services and 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 so on um and you look at where there's been most labor market churn in the last six to nine months you know if you work in if you work in hospitality i mean the the, the shortages now in hospitality if you work in that field you can probably pick your you know pick your employer and pick pretty much cherry pick how much you want to be paid i was talking to contacts of mine in australia um, last week and they have a similar issue with the labor market over there and she's talking about she knows one guy and he's literally moving around um hospitality uh providers every fortnight until he finds one that he likes because he can because the labor market is that fluid you think about the lorry driver shortages that we've had this year i don't know how you guys are fixed but we didn't get we didn't get some of our rubbish collected for a couple of months because there weren't enough people these low paid council workers suddenly enticed away by signing on bonuses and come and work for us with your hgv license in the private sector you know so that's one end of the market where you can see that the volatility is being fueled by wage inflation but at the other end, you know, I think it's a well-known thing that beyond a certain level of salary, you cease to improve your level of happiness. Like once you've arrived at a certain income level, any more money that gets paid to you doesn't make you any happier. And I think at that point, that's the point, you know, highly educated people who've got skills where they can they know they're more sought after and this has been a case well before the pandemic they're choosing things they're choosing to work for employers that not only talk about um intrinsic motivators whatever they may be but actually deliver on them as well and so you whatever happens now employers have to authentically transparently double down on the kind of environment they can offer to their staff. 
And so for all the talk about culture, you can talk about it all day long, but your culture is how you behave and the behavior that you're prepared as a leader to tolerate in your workplace, in your team, whatever, you know, that will be your culture. And people want more than a pay packet. That's it. Well, look, Kat, as we're, as we're coming into land, let me pull this let's pull this together. Uh, it's interesting you're talking about culture and um, people being encouraged by culture. I've noticed we've recently seen television adverts to be in the police, 20,000 new police people being recruited at the same time as some horrendous uh, revelations coming out from the Met. And uh, you do wonder which of those is going to have more sway over people as they make careers career choices. But anyway, um, you've talked about leadership. We've talked about these intrinsic motivations. You've talked about the, the environment that we create within organisations and the culture. So to, to round up the conversation, what are the, what are the key things you think that those of us in internal communication can do to enable more effective recruitment and perhaps even more crucially to enable this retention we've talked about okay in five in five minutes because i know we're running out of time so absolutely point number one i would absolutely make sure that your organization when it when it when it crafts any job description or any advert to go out to the labor market that it includes a compelling strategic narrative that is rich in emotional hooks and authentically so no point in in trying to blag that but you know what throughout my three decade career I never saw any job descriptions ever that were emotionally stimulating so that's that's point number one you know get involved in the the writing of those those job descriptions Point number two, if you've got people working within your organization who focus on the employee experience or employer branding, get stuck into understanding all the touch points that would take place between employer and job applicant prior to even the final stage of interview and think about how you can humanize those those touch points um i would strongly argue that most people involved in interviewing could do with some communication skills training to ensure that you know they're not just reading off a crib sheet clipboard that it's a two-way process that both interviewer and interviewee are invited to ask questions and so on so really thinking about humanizing that process all the way through thinking about how would I like to be treated if it was me what was my most recent um experience as a as a job seeker and so on and then when we come when we come over the threshold so we've gone past the recruitment phase into the retention phase is the experience that a new starter receives is that the same as what they were promised before they came over the threshold and and then it's back to the i guess the age old you know what is that dynamic between internal comms and engagement how does internal communication drive engagement what is the role of internal communication in the 2020s because we've gone so far beyond 
platforms and content, we, we, we need to embody effective communication that binds us together in solidarity as colleagues to deliver against those strategic objectives. Because if we don't do that, and we see the rise of the alternative workforce, and we don't improve the communication and the engagement within our organisations, all we're going to see is a continuous revolving door of staff, and they'll be leaving with all this tacit knowledge. And actually, honestly, I think that imperils the lifespan of the organisation. I literally think it's as critical as that. Well, that's a lot of lot of good tips there, Kat. A lot of good things to think about. For me, I'm going to going to follow on from from Dom's brought us in the beginning of the land, and I'm now going to put the wheels on the runway. That's the next stage. Um, so for me, there's so much from this, and there's so much opportunity for internal communication. But and I think there is a need to sort of elbow in or muscle in and to think wider than than actually what is every touch point, what is every communication, what is every and how can we make a role in improving that experience? And for me, there's things about and that boils down to humanizing it, enabling relationship, binding people, whether that's your colleagues, your teams, particularly as we move to more network-based distributed working. If you've got that trend also coming, you've got to really think about that. I think for me as well, we've got to try and <laughs> fight that age-old battle that Dom and I have seen for a few few years and we continue to do to get help those line managers. Let's not blame them, let's support them. Let's give them the tools. Let's give them the information. Let's help them be better. Because actually, if you've done a bad job as a line manager, it's very few of us that feel good about that. We want to be good at it. You know, we're not in it for the for the power. Some maybe, but actually, as humans, we want to feel good about how we've treated others. It's intrinsic to us. I think support is really important then, and ask questions and listen at every point um, that we can. And I think it is about this wider role for us around making community, humanization, and relationship. And let's try and shift some transactional processes to human processes. I think that's 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 where we've got to go. So I put the reels now, I think, firmly on the ground. <laughs> we hope that what you've walked away from, from this episode are some real key things to think about. And our advice to you is, you know, actually go and have a look around the organization, see what's happening, get involved in some conversations and take forward this great opportunity. So thanks again for listening and we'll hopefully tune in again soon. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode was brought to you today by the Institute of Internal Communication and was hosted by myself, Jen Sproul, Kat Barnard and Dominic Walters. We've been discussing the evolving role of internal comms in the COVID age. And this episode was produced by Jessica Williams and Shabit Lu Ogumpalu. And if you've enjoyed this episode today, we'd be enormously grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on the channel you use to tune in. It apparently helps others know we're here. Hopefully we'll tune in and see you next time.